0: Welcome to the Royal Society of Medicine's Trauma and Orthopaedic Section podcast. My name is Akib Khan. I am an orthopaedic registrar on the RSM Council, and I will be your host through this series of podcasts. We will feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. These speakers have all contributed at one of our events. For more details on our events, please visit the Royal Society of Medicine website or on socials using the handle rsmortho. Welcome to this episode of the Royal Society of Medicine's Orthopaedic Section Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Abton Alvin. Mr. Alvin is a consultant orthopaedic knee surgeon in Oxford who undertook specialist clinical fellowships in complex hip and knee surgery in Oxford and Stanmore before completing a fellowship focusing on periprosthetic joint infection at the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia, USA with Professor Parvizzi. Mr. Alvin has an unrivaled experience in the management of periprosthetic joint infections and he is a member of the International Consensus Group for the Management of Periprosthetic Joint Infection. He also sits on the UK Revision Knee Surgery and Periprosthetic Joint Infection Working Groups. Mr. Alvin also has an interest in simulation-based training methods for teaching and assessing surgical skills. Thank you very much for joining us at the Royal Society of Medicine.
1: Thank you very much, Akib, and thank you for Rosciited Medicine for inviting me to talk. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you. And you've just delivered a very interesting, captivating webinar covering infections and joint replacement surgery. And there are a few questions I'd like to ask you pertaining to this, please. The first of which is, what are the main methods for prevention of periprosthetic joint infection?
1: So... This has to be a very systematic, stepwise approach. Broadly speaking, it involves preoperative factors, intraoperative factors, and postoperative factors, which all have to be addressed. So the preoperative factors are predominantly host factors, and uh, these can be also divided into non-modifiable and modifiable factors. The non-modifiable factors, as the name uh, suggests, can't be changed, so these include things such as Previous surgery, previous septic arthritis, patients with multiple uh, comorbidities such as immunosuppression or cancer or liver and uh, renal failure and also patients who've had previous septic arthritis. So these can't be changed, but they're important to note because the surgeon needs to be able to carry out a risk analysis to be able to consent the patients appropriately and be able to inform his team as to the risk uh, sort of stratification of the patients. Modifiable factors are obviously uh, um, uh, very well known and there's been lots of literature focusing on these and how they can be improved and uh, these include uh, obesity, diabetes, smoking, drug and alcohol abuse, malnourishment and preoperative anemia and uh, skin problems and uh, finally things such as staph aureus uh, colonization of the patients. One can address all of these one by one but essentially we know that patients with uh, for example, uh, morbid obesity have a much higher rate of infection compared to those who are not. And these include uh, factors such as increasing the operative time, increasing transfusions. And many of these obese patients are commonly, for example, have other comorbidities such as diabetes. So that's one going on from um, obesity. Many of these patients are also malnourished and malnourishment is known to be a, a major factor for in- increasing uh, wound complication rates and also patients who, who are malnourished and, and are not obese also are at higher risk of these. So it's important to ensure that patients are uh, optimised from, a, for example, a dietitian's point of view preoperatively. And then we have the usual suspects such as diabetes, which again increases the patient's risk of infection. And again, factors such as HbA1c have been uh, used as a marker of trying to uh, risk stratify patients. Individuals are told to stop smoking, for example. We know that there's a a very high odds ratio of patients in numerous randomised controlled trials uh, of patients um, uh, who are smokers compared to non-smokers having higher complication rates, including infection. And then uh, things such as uh, staph aureus uh, decolonisation. Many institutions now around the UK have protocols in place for reducing MSSA, uh, decolonizing MSSA rather and MRSA and there's a national program in the UK aimed at treating this um, uh, and then finally uh, anemia is the very important factor which uh, individuals have to be aware of and there are now many institutions who have um, uh, protocols for trying to optimize patients' uh, anemia preoperatively, and then um, Finally, uh, things such as previous surgery and um, previous septic arthritis are known to increase, almost some, often double the risk of infection per, uh, perioperatively for patients undergoing primary joint replacements. So these are the uh, preoperative factors. And then you have some intraoperative factors, factors which are important to try and address. Um, starting with per- uh, prophylactic antibiotics, for example, this is probably the most singular effective preventative method one can um, uh, take. Uh, uh, one can address um, other f- uh, perioperative factors such as skin preparation, uh, which includes uh, an alcohol-based skin prep. Um, hair removal and uh, use of a, so an iodine impregnated incise draping, for example. And then during the actual surgery, one has to be very aware to reduce the, the amount of traffic and door opening within theatre. That's been shown to massively increase the number of particles within um, in, in the op- operative field. And then carrying out expeditious surgery, making sure um, time's not wasted because that's again uh, known to increase the risk of PJI in a number of uh, other studies. And then you have um, normal—you th- uh, have the issues with. But blood loss, again, using things like tranexamic acid to reduce blood loss intraoperatively. And then recently, there's been some data to show that possibly use of dilute betadine for lavage can also reduce the risk of infection, although this has been shown in in revision surgery as opposed to primary surgery. But again, uh, one can extrapolate into those fields. Postoperatively, there are a number of factors such as dressings and maybe using Uh, specific dressings such as negative pressure, closed incision wound dressings for high-risk cases. There are silver impregnated dressings which are used, for example, that are thought to at least reduce um, wound complications and bit larger well-powered studies are needed to show that they actually reduce infection rates. And then finally also um, the issue of um, anticoagulation. We know that um, aggressive anticoagulation can cause wound problems and uh, that and the use of aspirin whenever possible is probably recommended rather than things such as low molecular weight heparin. So one has to look at this in a stepwise fashion to address every part of the patient's pathway uh, in order to reduce the infection as uh, as much as possible because prevention is, in, is probably the best way of managing and tackling PJI before it sets in.
0: Thank you very much. That's a very comprehensive list of preoperative, intraoperative and postoperative measures that a surgeon can take to reduce the risk of developing a joint infection. And I quite liked during the webinar when you were speaking through how you prep a patient and when you were speaking about the evidence for, for example, the length of surgery and how going from 60 minutes to 90 minutes significantly increases the um, rates of PJI. So it brings me back to something which a trainer once told me, which was try to make every operation the same. So in your mind, do you have a mantra or sort of a stepwise checklist of what you do in order to ensure that you reduce the risk of a PJI occurring?
1: That's a very good piece of advice, actually. And arthroplasty actually lends itself well to this type of surgery compared to sort of the unpredictability of um, some surgery, such as trauma surgery the length of surgery in arthroplasties, uh, in in routine arthroplasty especially, is very predictable in terms of the preparation of the patients and and the protocols used pre and intra and post-operatively are all pretty much standardized. So as much as one can do, what I tell my registrars is, is, uh, my trainees is that, you know, I tell them the same thing again and again. Do not veer from what we do uh, every single day and and that's important especially when you move from one hospital to the other the key is to try and keep the things that you're in control of constant and and those interoperative factors that I mentioned such as prepping the, the patient prepping the leg, the way you put your drapes on um, everything has to go on uh, in a systematic way and and then if you do have an infection problem, then you can look back and systematically change small areas of your practice and see whether or not they make a difference because you can't just change. A hundred things and, and see which one was the one that w- was the pr- problem. So going through, having a systemic systematic approach allows you to make small modifications to your, to your practice and see the results in a relatively short period of time.
0: Thank you. Now, let's say that we've done the primary um, procedure and unfortunately the patient has developed a PJI and, um, or you suspect they have a PJI Have we solved the problem around how we diagnose infection in such a patient?
1: So the short answer is not fully, but we've come a long way. Uh, Essentially, there's a continuous debate around uh, uh, deciding what the best criteria system is and the most accurate system is for diagnosing PJI. Suffice to say, At the moment, there's no current gold standard and no single diagnostic test is perfect. So one has to try... And use the best available evidence and and over the past sort of decade or two with um, with the community or the community and the infectious disease community has made great strides to try and get there and um uh, I did mention there was a recent article in the uh, this month in the in the american j b j s which summarizes all of these but essentially one has to be a, all of these uh, diagnostic methods are aiming to try and uh, uh, try and address address bacteria which is which are essentially hiding within the biofilm and um, against uh, all of these uh, the diagnosis has to be a systematic stepwise approach and um, c- going from uh, history examination, routine uh, blood tests, uh, routine synovial fluid blood tests, um, imaging where necessary, and then going on to more sophisticated methods. Um, just generally speaking, always suspect um, PJI in a loose implant, uh, and unless and, and proved otherwise, uh, you have to have a protocol in your in your in your hospital so that everyone can follow the same method. Um, always try and uh, obtain a bug and a diagnosis of a of a of a microorganism preoperatively because this will massively help your treatment and also allow you to be able to for example undertake single stage uh, surgery which uh, we can probably touch on later um, and um, even if you um, you you have a culture negative infection during the surgery. You have to try and take multiple samples. So, in terms of the history, I would say it depends on the virulence of the organism. So, if someone's uh, it's a you have a virulent organism, the patient's going to be systemically unwell with fever, etc. So that will be obvious. Whereas with with le- with more indolent organisms, you're going to have someone who's had grumbling pain. Um, Following their uh, primary surgery, think about predisposing factors that we talked about. Is this patient a high risk individual? Look, talk to the patient because some patients may not always volunteer this information to you, but ask them about you know wound healing problems did they, did they have so called Superficial infections that the patient gave, that the consultant gave them antibiotics for. And finally, uh, when patients have pain on weight bearing, that's in, in my mind a very sensitive uh, the criteria for uh, giving you a clue as to the, in, the implant being infected. Um, And then obviously we use, we know all the diagnostic criteria. There are the um, international consensus meeting uh, criteria from 2013 and 2018. And there's some European bone and joint infection criteria that have come out. So I use the 2013 ICM criteria, which you can look up yourself. But in essence, um, we have two groups of patients. The patients who come to my BIU clinic are fairly easy to diagnose because they've been referred for an infection. And by default, many of them have um, sinuses and open wounds in their knees and they've had multiple previous surgeries. But the ones that catch you out are the ones who come to your routine uh, hip or knee clinic with, um, A painful joint and those are the ones that you're going to have to really dig deep into the history and and, um, examination and then uh, routinely you would go for uh, normal serum markers and I obtain CRP ESR and there are a number of other Markers that have recently been used, such as um, uh, procalcitonin and D-dimer. I don't think white cell counts that that useful, and I don't often use it unless patient uh, patients in extremis. Um, if those are raised, then I would go ahead to tr- and try and aspirate the joint. And I, I often use um, aspiration and biopsy together. So you ask the radiologist to carry out an image guided aspiration of the joint and also an image-guided biopsy of the implant bone I- interface and to send that for both uh, culture and also histology um, and then they will give you some uh, the relevant information uh, including things such as um, sign over white cell count and uh, neutrophil uh, percentage And then there are biomarkers that we've all heard about, and there have been multiple um, systematic reviews looking at them, Uh, things such as um, alpha-defensin, leukocyte esterase, interleukin-6, calprotectin, and the most commonly used in the UK at least are um, the alpha defensive and the leukocyte esterase. I prefer the leukocyte esterase because it's a little bit cheaper to use. All you need is a centrifuge. And, uh, but both of them are very useful and they've been shown to have good sensitivity and uh, specificity and, and both of them have been shown to not be affected by prior antibiotic use. And then looking to the future and in some institutions who can afford it and some who are carrying out um, research in the area, one can uh, look to carry out um, molecular techniques and these are particularly useful for uh, culture negative infections or difficult cases and essentially a next generation sequencing is one of those and it's a method it's a non sanger uh, dna sequencing is where it, you look at um, the entire genomic data and uh, essentially you're not relying on a on a uh, set panel of uh, primer type targets in the old pcr techniques you had to essentially tell the system what you were looking for or the number of a, a range of bacteria you were, organisms you were looking for whereas with um, ngs you actually you're able to actually look for all the DNA present with the microbial DNA within a sample and uh, get the results back relatively quickly within the, first, you know, with, within maximum of five days. And this is very useful, especially in culture negative infections. And it's been shown to have relatively good sensitivity up to 90%. And I think in the future, we'll be using more of this technique when it becomes more affordable uh, to the, to the uh, rest of the community.
0: It does sound quite impressive. Now, I think that quite a few of us have worked in various settings where revision arthroplasty is performed in different ways. For myself, I've worked in centers where all infected joints get two-stage revisions. And I've been to places where the argument is we should be doing one-stage revision procedures. What's the latest and what are your thoughts in this area?
1: Yeah, I mean, that is an ongoing debate and an area of interest and uh, there are national trials going on. To try and address this there is a current one in the states there was a hip um, trial, a national trial called the INFORM trial that um, has just finished in the UK and uh, um, Oxford uh, my institution and Exeter are currently um, doing a pilot study to look at this uh, feasibility of carrying out such a trial for knees but um, as you said the traditional gold standard has been the two-stage technique and we know it's 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 uh, it's a very uh, um, reliable t- technique but it does have a number of um, downsides in that it has a high higher morbidity associated with it with two operations and also bigger economic burden on the uh, um, healthcare uh, institutes um uh, in terms of one and two stage um broadly speaking when you're trying to make uh, come up with a treatment pro- process you can treat some patients um, non-operatively especially if they're very frail or they don't want to undergo any um, surgery and then you can have multi you can have staged formal surgery which we'll discuss and then you also have the option of amputation for example which is not often um, acceptable to many patients, and um, there's also um, there debridement antibiotics and implant retention, which we can discuss later. But in terms of um, and in terms of uh, one and two stage, there is definitely an increasing interest in. One-stage revision, and uh, um, broadly speaking, one of the main indications for carrying out this uh, one-stage procedure is if you have a positive pre-op um, culture for patients and uh, uh, patients and a sensitive bug, essentially. But um, there are a number of contraindications if someone's in gross sepsis, for example, or they've had a number of previous failed revisions or if you can't cover the wound um, primarily or with the use of plastics at that sitting. And also if you have what I call difficult to treat bugs, such as fungal infections, polymicrobial infections, and then uh, finally the host. If you have a very poor host, they may not be suitable for a a one-stage operation operation. Um, Two-stage surgery, again, um, uh, is essentially uh, the indications are the opposite of one stage and we currently uh, um, carry that out for uh, patients with negative pre-op cultures, difficult to treat bugs, multi-resistant bugs, um, difficulties with soft tissue cover and individuals who are in uh, systemic sepsis. Uh, so um those that that's broadly speaking uh the indications and contraindications and one and two stage for me i try and do a single stage operation um where i can but the key for that is that this is two operations under one anesthetic so you have to really treat it uh, uh, very meticulously you Do your first debridement and your um, culturing and uh, implant removal. Take away all the dead tissue, and then everything comes off essentially. And you do a full redrape. Often we, uh, uh, you can go off, get a quick drink of water, come back. Everything gets changed, new drapes, new instruments, and then you perform as if you were doing a primary arthroplasty. So the the level of Um, attention to uh, cleanliness has to be as if you're prepping someone for a primary joint replacement and I always tell my trainees would you do this uh, uh, action for example if you were doing a primary knee replacement and if the answer is no then that's not good enough for your second part of your uh, one stage surgery Um, You have to be mindful that obviously it's going to be a longer operation and you have to warn your anesthetist about that. And sometimes if you feel that it's the patient's unable to tolerate that, you have to bail out and uh, go to a second uh, second stage at another sitting. And I have had to do that in in my experience at times.
0: It's very good advice. And one of the things which I was wondering was you mentioned skin loss. And sometimes we, you know, are, are lost without the plastic surgeons and in revision settings that often can be the case. Do you think that there is a role for plastic surgery in revision the arthroplasty? And if so, do you think that revision knee arthroplasty should only be performed in centers where plastic surgeons are available?
1: Um, so the first the answer to your first question is yes, definitely. Plastics are critical to the MDT. I mean, the the carrying out revision surgery for infection is an operation that um, from a technical point of view surgeons can do those who are trained in revision surgery but from a logistic point of view it just cannot be done without an MDT. I am not best suited to be able to uh, put on a flap. I was, I'm i not trained in that. I'm not best suited to ch- choose the best antibiotics and the sensitivities. So I'm not best suited to be able to provide the best um, radiology ad- uh, report and advice on these patients. So really, you really have to try and manage these patients in a multidisciplinary team setting. And I don't think any P- uh, PJI in the future will be carried out outside of a a network where all these um, uh, individual members of the MDT are available. Having said that, the plastics are critical, so they essentially uh, allow you to have no fear. Similar to tumour surgery, they allow you to uh, carry out radical yet meticulous surgery and they allowed you to give a good soft tissue cover to cover deficits to reduce dead space to bring good quality tissue and blood supply to the area and, um, and the the workhorse per se for this sort of surgery are the Medial and lateral gastroflaps, flaps, which are local flaps. But in in situations where both of these have been used, for example, one can use uh, free flaps such as the latissimus dorsi flap um, for pay, for some uh, complex redo, re-revision cases per se. But again, you have to see whether or not your patient is able to undergo such a such an extensive operation and whether or not they have The um, uh, the uh, comorbidities that would prevent a free flap from taking, for example. In answer to your uh, last question, you can carry out um, uh, PJI surgery in a specialist centre without plastics being there, but you you have to have some knowledge of what wounds are at risk and especially around the knee the pre-tibial region where there's been a lot of previous surgery and scarring is often uh, is an at-risk area so you have to have some knowledge of previous incisions and which ones to use etc so as long as you're in touch with the plastic surgeons and you're you are discussing cases with them they don't need to be there in every case to hold your hand but um, we do care it is a, it is a, a very desirable if you do you can carry out um mdt type clinics with the plastic surgeons and you should also also have a friendly plastic surgeon available at short notice if you do run into trouble.
0: Thank you very much. Now, final question. What advances do you see in the field of prosthetic joint infections?
1: In short, this is a, a, a really exciting field. And I think it's one of the final frontiers in orthopaedics. And it's what um, attracted me towards the field is is the amount of unanswered questions, which can be answered in the next decade or two. So I think most of these uh, technologies and uh, treatment and management techniques are looking at trying to uh, tackle the biofilm, essentially. And, uh, and, mo- and these include diagnostic techniques, which I mentioned, for example, such as next generation sequencing and, um, uh, but in terms of actual treatment uh, there are a number of um, novel techniques that have uh, uh, that have been described in the last few years um, one of these for example is the use of bacteriophages uh, which are essentially naturally occurring viruses that target and kill bacteria by destroying their biofilm matrix, and, um, and these have uh, fall, fell out of favour after the discovery of antibiotics. But they've come back into fashion, and there's a lot of interest in them. And essentially, these these um, viruses have l- lysins that um, attack the uh, bacterial cell wall, and also they facilitate better penetration of antibiotics um, uh, to uh, be able to damage, uh, destroy the biofilm. What is important about these viruses is that they are specific to a to a bacterium. So you have to get a diagnosis of what bacteria you have before you can um, design it. Use a um, bacteriophage towards it. There have been some uh, phase one and two RCTs, um, but again, in in terms of PJI there's been no um, human trials yet there's an animal model that's uh, being um, investigated and so that's one of the areas that one would uh, that I think is really exciting and then you have other things such as Uh, vaccines which have been developed especially towards uh, staph and pseudomonas again they're not not in um, routine use yet and they're undergoing early trials and then there are a number of other factors that try and destroy the biofilm so there are a a number of um, enzymes that you can use to try and destroy the biofilm and there are um uh, shockwave therapy and electrical stimulation techniques that can attack the biofilm and break it down, and then finally looking at implants. Um, there is a number of bioengineering approaches to make materials that are bacteria that have bacteriostatic or bactericidal coatings, like silver, copper, and zinc. so, those have been uh, been, being currently investigated, and uh, uh, surface modifications of implants, for example, with iodine, have taken some interest and um, they've been used. But if you uh, coating implants and modifying surfaces can affect your um, uh, C marking, so again, uh, you can't modify um, prostheses too much without having to go through the regulatory hoops. So those um, technologies are in their early sort of development stages at the moment. But there's, there, there are definitely uh, an, a number of technologies that are very promising and I think will help us um, combat uh, PJI in the future.
0: Thank you very much. And thank you for taking us into the final frontier.
1: No problem at all. It's a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Royal Society of Medicine's orthopedic section podcast. For more details on our events and speakers, please visit the Royal Society of Medicine's website or follow us on social media using the handle RSMOrtho.